Welcome back. This week, we are diving deeper into what's going on in the Idaho University murders. There are a number of new motions asking the court to reconsider the non-dissemination or gag order. We're going to look at those. We're going to look at what's being filed, when the next court date is, because the court date has been changed again, and who is asking to intervene this time. So we're going to go through those motions today and have a bit of a conversation about the First Amendment, the rights of the press, the rights of attorneys, and whether or not someone can get a fair trial with or without a non-dissemination order and how that will impact this prosecution going forward. And if there's a right answer here, the public's right to know and the right to open courts versus the defendant's right to a fair and impartial jury versus the First Amendment guarantees of free speech and a free press. There's a lot of rights bumping up against each other. And how do we balance those rights when really it's constitutional rights versus constitutional rights? That's what we're going to talk about today. So let's get into it. Welcome to The Emily Show. I'm Emily D. Baker, the internet's go-to legal analyst and big fan of the cursey words. I've been a licensed attorney for over 17 years. I'm a former prosecutor, and I break down the legal side of pop culture and entertainment stories we can't stop talking about. We should just get into it. Let's go. You know how much I like to keep things easy, and today's sponsor, Olive and June, is making the at-home manicure super easy. They have everything you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box, and you can customize it with your choice of six polishes, and your polish is going to remain chip-free for seven days or more. And it comes with an acetone remover pot when you are ready to take it off, and their award-winning cuticle serum. I actually keep this in my desk all the time so I can pop it on when I'm thinking about it and doing things. It keeps my cuticles looking great and it has a really fun, fuzzy top. I love it. Sometimes we just don't have time to get to the salon or you want a little downtime painting your nails or the nails of your family members because I've definitely given my family members manicures with my Olive and June system. And right now you can try it for yourself. So visit oliveandjune.com slash lawnard for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E.com slash L-A-W-N-E-R-D for 20% off your first Olive and June system. All right, let's get back to today's show. Today, we have a number of new motions from Idaho with regard to the court's non-dissemination order. In other coverage, I went through what was going on up at the state Supreme Court. The state Supreme Court in Idaho denied the writs that were taken up, determining that they didn't have original jurisdiction. So you can go watch that content, but I'm also going to give you a quick breakdown of what happened at the state Supreme Court. The state Supreme Court said in some, hey, you haven't exhausted your remedies at the local court level. So go back to the state district court and tell the state district court judge that you would like them to throw out their order, reconsider their order, vacate their order, modify their order so it doesn't apply to you, clarify the order. Like, go talk to the judge that wrote the order. Don't come crying to the Supreme Court about this thing. Yeet. Pretty shortly after the Supreme Court in the state of Idaho decided that they were not going to take this any further and denied the writ, we saw the district court say, okay, there is a motion at the district court level from 
the Gonsalves family attorney for the victim's surviving family saying, hey, this shouldn't apply to them. This shouldn't apply to me. And the court set that motion for a hearing. Well, shortly thereafter, at the very beginning of May, we got another motion to intervene from all of the media companies. All of the media companies are now asking the court to either vacate or clarify or reconsider the non-dissemination order. And those are the motions we're looking through today. So even though the court had set a date for a hearing on the Gonsalves families, part of this uh, series of objections to the non-dissemination order, the court has now set that for a scheduling hearing on May 22nd. I'll be covering the scheduling hearing. I don't think we will get much on that day other than a lot of lawyers saying, hey, we can hear oral arguments on this day. And then the court will set a hearing they're having a hearing to set a hearing. It's like making a Zoom meeting to find a time to schedule another Zoom meeting. But the court is going to hear them out, and I will cover that too, where we get into the oral arguments. Is it likely that this court is going to overturn their own non-dissemination order? No. Could the court clarify who it applies to and who it doesn't apply to better? Yes. And we learned more about how this non-dissemination order or gag order is impacting the Associated Press at all. And they gave some very specific examples, which I think are helpful as we evaluate this for our conversation today, balancing these rights between, again, the attorney's right to free speech for the victim's surviving family, the press and their First Amendment right to freedom of the press, and then the defendant's constitutional rights to a fair and impartial jury and where those rights all balance against one another, which is, again, an important and interesting question because having access to our criminal court system and knowing what's going on is important, but the defendant having an impartial jury is also important. And one of the cases we're going to look at today is a case from the 60s. So while a lot of my conversation is about social media and worldwide media, this isn't a new problem. This problem predates social media very, very clearly. This goes back to the days of newspapers and, and pamphlets and people having conversations and the early days of our country. It's part of why the rights in the Constitution are what they are. So the balancing of these rights has long been discussed in the courts, and it's just playing out in new ways because of how fast we can all communicate with one another and how fast information can spread. But I think when we talk about one of the cases we're going to talk about today, you might see some similarities in other cases that I've covered here. And the concerns still stand is when is a jury so exposed to what's going on in the media that it actually denies the defendant a fair trial because they didn't have a fair and impartial jury? So let's go to the first motion with this motion to intervene, just to lay the groundwork of what is being asked. And we have not seen, I guess I should clarify this, we have not seen a response from the government or the defense. Remember, this non-dissemination order came about on a stipulation between the defense attorneys and the prosecution. They all agreed with the court. And then I covered that uh meeting that they all had in January with the Gonsalves family attorney, the prosecution, the defense, and the court, and they wrote a memo about the meeting and they didn't redact it and it didn't even get filed 
until they finally redacted bits of it out and then filed it with regard to the writ. So we didn't hear about that until months and months after it happened, which will also come up in these motions. So the first thing we're going to is the motion to intervene. Okay, State of Idaho versus Brian C. Koberger. This is another motion by the Associated Press, Radio Television Digital News Association, Sinclair Media of Boise, uh, LLC, uh, State's Newsroom, Idaho Capital Sun, uh, King Seattle, the Lewiston Tribune, Washington State Association of Broadcasters, on and on and on, including the Scripps Media Network that is uh, that houses Court TV and others. So all the media networks, it seems, all the same players that took the writ, because at this point, why wouldn't it be? And this is their motion to intervene, asking the court to allow them to make a motion or to intervene in this and become a part of the court case because they're not really part of the case, right? They're not the state and they're not representatives for Brian Koberger. So they have to ask the court if they can, in fact, intervene. Interveners are a coalition of media companies that, but for the amended non-dissemination order dated January 18th, 2023, the gag order, would gather more information about Mr. Koberger's arrest and prosecution and then make editorial decisions about whether and when to publish that information. The state and Mr. Koberger, the parties, stipulated to what ultimately became the gag order. The interveners were not given an opportunity to submit any written or oral objections in the approximately one hour between the parties submitting their stipulation and the court issuing the gag order. And remember, when the victim's family's attorney went to the court to inquire about, does this apply to me? Instead of minimizing or reducing this order in any way, what the court decided to do was extend the order in that amended non-dissemination order shortly after that hearing or that meeting, because it was actually a chamber's meeting, not a hearing. Because the gag order violates interveners' rights under the U.S. and Idaho constitutions, they petitioned the Idaho Supreme Court to vacate the gag order. Last week, the Idaho Supreme Court held that a, quote, vague, overbroad, and unduly restrictive or not narrowly drawn gag order is an unconstitutional obstacle to interveners gathering information in the case. But on procedural grounds, I love how they frame it, but on procedural grounds, the Idaho Supreme Court decided that this court should have a chance in the first instance to vacate the gag order. Do you see the way they framed it? They framed it as, hey, Your Honor, hey. So the Supreme Court totally agrees with us, but on like picky, you know, procedural grounds. It's, it's almost always picky procedural grounds. If they can find a procedural ground, they're going to rule on a procedural ground first before ruling on the issue, like every time. But also, we're giving you the opportunity to like do the right thing, right? We would like to give you the instance, the first instance to vacate the gag order. That is, the Idaho Supreme Court declined to exercise its original jurisdiction because interveners have an available remedy. Yeah, go talk to the court. Go talk to the court that issued it. The Idaho Supreme Court acknowledged that, quote, Idaho's rules of criminal procedure do not provide a specific mechanism for third parties to intervene in a criminal case, but they observed that both state and federal courts often permit the media to intervene in criminal cases on a limited basis or at least file a motion as interested parties. So that's what they're doing here. This motion is the media entity saying to the court, hey, excuse me. We'd like to be heard 
can you just listen to us for a moment? So that motion to intervene is really the first thing they're looking for the court to grant. Allow us to intervene. And then we've also filed the motion we'd like you to consider. So that is why we have so many motions that were filed in pretty quick succession. To lay the groundwork a little bit more, we're going to go to the declaration of the attorney that has brought all of these, Wendy Olson, and their declaration that kind of lays out the timeline. And then we're going to get into the substance of their motion. It is a fairly long motion. We're not going to go through all of it, but we're going to go to some of the cases that they cite and what these rights are. So this is the declaration of the attorney in support of the motion to vacate the amended non-dissemination order. They're asking the court to yeet their own order. I, Wendy J. Olson, declare as follows. I'm a partner within the law firm of law firm, counsel for petitioners. I have personal knowledge of the facts. And then they attach literally everything. So uh, exhibit A is a copy of the filing in the state of Idaho case. Exhibit B is a filing in the state of Idaho versus Brian Kohlberger, on and on and on, including all of the cases with regard to, or all of the filings with regard to the um, petition to the Supreme Court or the writ to the Supreme Court. This is interesting because this is the, what they include is kind of the different hurdles that have been run into by the different outlets. And I found them listing them out to be very interesting because this is really the heart of what the media wants to get to. This is the information they're hoping to get. During the course of representing the media outlets who are challenging this court's gag order, I have been informed of the following by them. Quote, a victim's family wants to speak with the press about Mr. Koberger's prosecution, but they feel bound by the gag order. So there is a victim's family that wants to speak with a media outlet and has not been able to do so. Major Christopher Paris of the Pennsylvania State Police told reporter Christopher Ingalls that he could not answer whether police had launched any review of unsolved cases that could be linked to Mr. Koberger because of the gag order. In my other coverage, I did cover the two district attorneys in their respective jurisdictions in Pennsylvania that said that they had not found anything that matched and they had looked into that. So two different district attorneys made the statement, but they want the Pennsylvania State Police to make a statement and Pennsylvania State Police has declined to acquiesce to that request based on this gag order. The Moscow mayor, Art Bettage, told reporter Erica Zuko that the city attorney advised he could not answer questions about the overall community healing in Moscow because of the gag order. Journalist Taylor M's public records requests were denied by the Lataw County Sheriff's Office, Moscow Police Department, Pullman Police Department, Washington State Police Department because of the gag order. So there is another journalist who is trying to get to public records. Those public records can include things like 911 calls and other things, and those have been denied. Uh, Gary Jenkins, chief of police at Washington State University, and Matt Young, the communication coordinator for the city of Pullman, told reporter Mor Morgan Romero that they could not answer questions whether Mr. Koberger applied for a graduate assistant research position with the Pullman Police Department because of the gag order. So this would be clarifying some of the things that have been reported. Did Brian Koberger apply for a position with Pullman PD? And Pullman PD and their communication officer are saying, we can't answer anything. The uh, Moscow Police Department refused to advise a reporter from the Idaho Statesman how many cell phone towers are in the area near where the murders occurred. 
the size of Mr. Koberger's cell, the size of the Moscow jail, and the nature of Mr. Koberger's meals because of the gag order. So they want to know if he's being fed a special diet. I don't know what they mean by the size of his cell. I'm assuming they don't mean his cell phone and they mean his actual physical cell inside the jail, like where he's being housed. Law and crime reporter Anjanette Levy was denied access to Koberger's booking video from the Lataw County Sheriff's Office because of, quote, the court's non-dissemination order. So this is the attorney saying these are all the specific instances where different media outlets have requested things that could be public records, and those things were denied, including how Brian Koberger is living his day-to-day in custody, what, how many cell phone towers there are near the area. So could the phone have been pinging off of one tower and been quite far away, or are there lots of towers so those pings are necessarily going to be closer to the residents? Trying to put things together, trying to get to other information, and we'll learn more about that in the full memorandum that we're getting to now. Well, now-ish, because we're going to take a brief break for our sponsor. Keeping yourself safe online is getting more and more complex, but thankfully today's sponsor, NordVPN, is making it easy for you to stay safe while you are browsing the internet from your computer or your mobile devices or your kids' mobile devices. Not only can they help guard you against malicious download and clicking the wrong link, but also making sure that you're not being tracked. One of the things I've seen a huge rise in, and I've actually seen a number of content creators have their channels and their socials taken over because of these times of attack, is clicking the link on an advertisement or in an email. With NordVPN, they actually scan the ads and links for you and scan anything that you download so that your device doesn't get taken over. All of this works seamlessly in the background while Nord is up and running and it can work on up to six devices. Go to nordvpn.com slash emilydbaker or use code emilydbaker to get an exclusive deal. And remember, with NordVPN, you always have a 30-day money-back guarantee. So it's risk-free. Go give it a try and get yourself protected online today. Let's get back to today's episode. And now we're getting into the full motion, the memorandum in support of motion to vacate the amended non-dissemination order. So they're not actually even asking for clarification. They're asking to vacate the non-dissemination order. I think the court is not going to be inclined to do that. Again, when the court was asked for clarification, the court not only doubled down, but expanded the order. If the court denies this motion, what they are likely to do is say, okay, Hey, Supreme Court of Idaho, we took it back to the district court. The district court said, no, now will you hear our motion and decide if it's overbroad? Now will you grant us a writ? So this might be purely procedural for them. And it might be that they are just hoping that the court will deny it so they can take the writ back up. Or maybe they're hoping the court will grant their motion or clarify the order so they don't have to spend the time and energy going up to the appellate court because by the time the Supreme Court gets to it and hears it and is done with it, it might be after this case is over, which maybe is a feature and not a bug, right? Introduction. Last week, this was filed, by the way, on May 1st. So this was just filed uh, not that many days ago from when I am recording this. Last week, the Idaho Supreme Court confirmed that a, quote, 
vague, overbroad, unduly restrictive, or not narrowly drawn gag order is, quote, an unconstitutional obstacle to interveners gathering information about this case. And then they cite the petition. They say again, but on procedural grounds, the Idaho Supreme Court decided that this court should have the chance in the first instance to vacate it. Following the guidance, interveners now ask this court to vacate the gag order because it is vague, overbroad, unduly restrictive, not narrowly drawn. And those are all the grounds that they're saying, hey, we have a right to freedom of press. That is a protected right. The court is essentially putting a prior restraint on the press, meaning you can't go gather this information. We're restraining your speech before it can be spoke, be, be spoken, before you can speak. And those types of prior restraints are generally unconstitutional. It's seen as a form of censorship. And when the court is issuing it, the, that is a branch or wing of the government, right, in, uh, intervening with the right of the free press. They're saying that the gag order expands far beyond Idaho Rule of Professional Conduct 3.6, which would apply to lawyers, but not to the press. The ability of courts to restrict lawyers is very different than the ability of the court to restrict the press. They serve very different roles. And so this is a different position than the position of the attorney who's saying, I have the right to represent my clients and speak to the press if they, if I want to. And if my clients want to, and I can relay the things my clients would want to say to the press and should be able to, because I am not one of the attorneys representing a party in this case. So the court doesn't have as much power over me as they would as if I were one of the attorneys representing a party in the case. Uh, they said that Idaho Rule of Professional Conduct 3.6 applies to individuals not governed by those ethical rules and prohibiting any statements about the case, not just those that present a substantial likelihood of materially prejudicing a fair trial. What's more, they say the state and Mr. Koberger have submitted no evidence that the media coverage presents a significant risk. The media goes on to order that the gag order, which is based on the party's stipulation, rests merely on the assumption that the press coverage or that press coverage is bad. So far, the parties have not been required and the court has not been required to show a finding as to why this much of a uh, gag order is needed. In December 2022, Brian Koberger was arrested, this is their background, and charged for allegedly murdering four students at the University of Idaho, despite great public interest in the investigation of the murders. And now with the prosecution of Mr. Koberger, there have not been any notable leaks or dissemination of extrajudicial information that would prejudice Mr. Koberger's right to a fair trial. Yet, the party stipulated to a gag order, quote, prohibiting attorneys, investigators, and law enforcement personnel from making any extrajudicial statement, written or oral, concerning this case, other than a quotation from or reference to, without comment, the public records of the court in this case. The parties offered no evidence in support of their stipulation, simply asserting, as this court is aware, this case involves matters that have received a great deal of publicity. That's not going to be an adequate threshold. Their assumption, while not wrong, does not say the publicity has been prejudicial to Mr. Koberger. The court issued the requested gag order just over an hour after the parties submitted their stipulation. I didn't realize it was that fast. Interveners do not doubt the court had good intentions. Oh, Your Honor, we're not trying to blast you. And then they go on to say, but an hour is not enough time to meaningfully consider the constitutional interests at stake. And that's fair. The court said, well, if both sides, it seems, 
I don't know what the court is thinking, but it seems the court said both sides are stipulating it's a high profile case. And we've seen another high profile cases in Idaho that the courts have yeeted the media out of the case saying, look, we're not going to have recording. We're not going to have streaming. We're not going to have audio. We're not going to have anything. If you can come and sit in court, that's it. They go on to say there was no time for the court to hold a hearing, take any objections, make factual findings, or perform legal analysis. Ten days later, the court held a private meeting with the parties and an attorney for a victim's family. The parties drafted a memorandum after the meeting. The memorandum is not a court order. It is the party's memorialization of what they remember from the meeting. Yeah, and that meeting got snip-snip at some point. Um, I'll link below, to the best of my memory, <laughs> the coverage where I went over the memo from that meeting because at one point you could tell just even the way the memo was written you can tell there was sass happening it's the party's memorialization of what they remember from the meeting even though minor redactions would satisfy any privacy concerns the parties opted to file the entire memorandum under seal to the public it appeared that meeting never occurred the parties later agreed to unseal the memorandum and use it to oppose the interviewer's petition in the idaho supreme court which leaves me to believe if they hadn't taken a writ to the Supreme Court, would we have ever even heard about the meeting or seen that memo until well after this case is done? Five days after the private meeting, the court issued the gag order that is at issue in this motion. There's a footnote one that I didn't get to, and it said the docket cannot be accessed on iCourts, so intervener's knowledge of the proceedings is limited to what the Idaho Judicial Branch has posted at the public website. Normally you would see, and we see this even in Los Angeles where things can be a little difficult to access in cases like a Britney Spears case, you can see what's happening. Sometimes it just says something like motion. And if it's sealed, you have no idea what the motion is regarding, but you can at least see that something was filed to look into. But here we can't see the docket. So you don't know if there was a meeting or a hearing held unless the court puts something out publicly. So yes, things can be happening in this case that we don't know about until a document is posted on the public facing website because you can't see the full docket. They go on to say because the proceeding meeting was held privately to, uh, to the public, it appeared that the court had issued the gag order sua sponte. The court noted in the gag order that quote, to preserve the right of a fair trial, some curtailment of the dissemination of information in this case is necessary and authorized under the law. The court made no factual findings in support of that conclusion, which, of course, it could not, as, again, the parties presented no evidence. And then it says in parentheses, if evidence were presented during the private meeting, it was not offered on the record and cannot be relied upon as the interviewers have no means to evaluate, let alone challenge the veracity of the evidence nor did the court hold any hearing or offer any legal analysis, aside from a footnote citing several authorities and offering no explanation. The gag order extends beyond what the parties requested in their stipulation. The gag order applies to, and then it lists again, the uh, broadness of the gag order, including all the attorneys and including the witness, victim, or victim's family, as well as the parties to the entitled action, investigators, et cetera. Then they go through the specific instances and expand on them. This expands on the specific instances that we previously went through in the supporting declaration. 
including this one that's not in the supporting declaration or I didn't see it, which is a Washington agency requested declaratory relief to determine whether consistent with the gag order, it can produce 911 tapes in response to public records requests id exhibit F, and then the exhibit is attached. So that one is added. I think it's left out of the, or I missed it in the um, declaration, but there is an agency in Washington where people have requested the 911 tapes. I imagine what happened is that the response was, we don't know if we can release the 911 tapes. Normally those things get released regarding public information act requests or FOIA requests, the Freedom of Information Act requests, and you would see them. But in this case, they're like, no, we need to be told if we can release this based on the gag order. And I don't think they can based on this gag order. And that significantly curtails what can be released, even though they're not specifically sealed. All right. Since some of these instances are different, we're going to go through some of them. The Moscow Police Department issued a press release that said, quote, due to this court order, the Moscow Police Department will no longer be communicating with the public or the media regarding this case. And then it went through the other things that we saw in the declaration. It said, within weeks of the court issuing the gag order, interveners petitioned the Idaho Supreme Court to vacate or nullify the order. And then it goes through what the Supreme Court did. Their argument starts with citing a case, Shepard v. Maxwell, quote, justice cannot survive behind walls of silence. For that reason, quote, a responsible press has always been regarded as the handmaiden of effective judicial administration, especially in the criminal field. Quote, the press does not simply publish information about trials, but guards against the miscarriage of justice by subjecting the police, prosecutors, and judicial process to extensive public scrutiny and criticism. The First Amendment was thus, quote, intended to give liberty of the press the broadest scope that could be countenanced in an orderly society. So the press, the freedom of the press, is supposed to be a check against abuse of power. I am not here to have a conversation about abuses of power from the press today. I realize there's room for that conversation. That's not today's conversation. There's lots of conversations to be had, but we're not going to get into an everything problem. We're just going to talk about this one. What's so interesting to me is they quote Shepard v. Maxwell, which is a 1966 Supreme Court case. The Shepard v. Maxwell case is a very interesting case. It was overturned at the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court found that the defendant was denied a fair trial because of the overreaching of the press. So for the press to be citing a case where the press actually caused a conviction to be overturned is Interesting to me, but it's where the Supreme Court really gave some thought to how to balance these two rights. In the Shepard Maxwell case, or Shepard v. Maxwell from 1966, the media storm around the case was actually called circus like. Where have we heard that language before? And they talked about how broadly the court at the trial level gave access to the media, to the point where if you look at historical photos of this trial, the media in their like large 1960s cameras are swarming the entrance and exit of the court. I'm going to give you just some of a summary about the media free reign during this trial and this case. In 1954 in Cleveland, Marilyn Shepard, the pregnant wife of an osteopath and a prominent socialite, 
was beaten to death. Her husband, Sam Shepard, first called the mayor, a family friend, to report the crime. He claimed to have struggled with an intruder who knocked him out. The police saw no signs of breaking and entering. It was discovered that Shepard had been having an affair. The three-day coroner's inquest was biased against the doctor, and the Cleveland press goaded the prosecutors into charging Shepard. One newspaper at the time ran over 399 stories about the case in six months. During the trial, the judge allowed free reign of the media. The trial lasted for two weeks. The chief prosecutor at the time was running for judge. The judge at the time was also up for re-election. The media published the addresses of the witnesses, took photographs of all 12 jurors, was seated in the front of the courtroom. Radio and press press pundits aired gossip about the case as if it was evidence. The judge told a columnist that Shepard was guilty as hell. Even as they deliberated, jurors were allowed to phone their friends. Have you ever heard of a Joey? Joey, have you ever heard of a juror being allowed to phone a friend? Ever? Like, ever? The jury took over 30 ballots to convict Shepard. His conviction was then overturned at the Supreme Court for denying him a fair trial. The Supreme Court overturned the conviction, finding that Shepard was denied a fair trial because of the publicity. Does this sound familiar to you at this point? If it does, it is because this is the basis for the movie and TV series, The Fugitive. So if the facts sound familiar to you, it's because this is that case where the media ran so wild that the Supreme Court had to overturn a conviction. And that is what the court is trying to avoid. However, the media was publishing addresses of witnesses and photographs of jurors, which is different than pretrial publicity. Shepard was retried in 1966 by famed attorney F. Lee Bailey and was acquitted. So that says quite a lot about this case when without the media circus and with a highly curtailed media during the trial, there was a different outcome and result. Isn't that interesting? But he wasn't acquitted until 12 years after the murder. So this is the circumstance that the court is trying to avoid. But this case is also surrounding a circumstance of the media's behavior during trial. And I think there's room to say what a media, the media can and can't do during trial in a courtroom is a bit different. And that's why in the cases that I cover, we commonly see just a few cameras in court that are pooled. So court TV often has the cameras that they put in court. They are remotely operated, so they're non-obtrusive or obstructive to the jury. They don't block anyone's view. And they are broadcast publicly within the confines of the court order, not showing um, photos of the crime scene that show the victims, not showing autopsy photos and streaming those, keeping some things under seal that are more sensitive, not showing witnesses um, or victims that might be minors or children, what minors are children, those sorts of things. So there are some confines to it, but those are confines that could happen inside of a courtroom anyway if you were there publicly. So with those considerations, that 
court, that case balanced the First Amendment rights, and we can go into that case more. I'm sure it's been covered all over the internet, right? And a movie and a TV show and all the rest of it. But it balances what does it really mean to have a trial impacted by media? And it's not just that some people might watch the streams and make fun of the testimony on TikTok. That's not what's meant. This case gives you kind of the most egregious example of what that looks like when the media actually impacts a trial and whether that's happening here. And the media requests to me trying to get to the 911 call, well, the 911 call can be sealed, but victims' families being able to talk to the press, they should be allowed to do that. It's not going to prejudice a jury. In cases with substantially more publicity than this and broader public figures, you're able to find members of the community who say, I've never heard of this case before. And if you're worried about it, you can expand the reach of bringing people in for jury service if you have a small community. But in most cases that we have watched, they have been able to find jurors who have not heard much about the case and say, I can be a fair and impartial jury. I don't pay attention to this. That's the one thing with media getting um, so much more dispersed is it's not as if there's only three stations and you know that everybody's watching the same three things. People aren't watching TV in the same way anymore. They're not watching traditional media and consuming it. Some might be on TikTok. Others are on Instagram. Some are on YouTube. Some are just on Reddit. Some aren't doing any of it and just want to read the newspaper. So it might actually diminish the impact of any given media covering something because it has more of a chance to miss people when they have more options of where to put their attention. I mean, I can go on YouTube now, depending on, I have multiple channels that I use to view YouTube on because I am interested in how the algorithm works in different ways because I work on YouTube and I'm fascinated by it. But if I'm on my like really zen aesthetic channel, all of the videos I get served are within that. I don't see a single video about this case or any of the other ongoing cases where when I'm on the channel that I use to do research for work, that's all I see. So when we're talking about big cases like this, even a case like Depp v. Heard, my husband saw none of the coverage of Depp v. Heard. It wasn't getting served to him on any of his social media because it's not the kind of content that he looked at. So even though we're in the same house with the same IP address, he's still not seeing it. So I do think it's still possible, and maybe it's arguable that it's more possible to find jurors that aren't paying attention in the same way because there's so much more to pay attention to now than there was in the 1950s and 60s. There's so many more options for entertainment, for distraction, for what you do with your time that you really can go on social media and not see things because there's so much more to see. Hopefully that makes sense. So the court needs to show more than, well, this is a highly publicized case, so we can't have a fair and impartial jury. They've found fair and impartial juries for all of the high-profile cases I've covered. I think the bigger argument, well, I don't know if it's bigger. One of the arguments or points of discussion we still need to have about social media in these cases is, does it discourage victims and witnesses from testifying? Does it impact the court when people call in threats to the court, pretend to be jurors and make statements? 
how do we deal with those types of ancillary issues? But when it comes to finding a fair and impartial jury, this court has not said that the media coverage to date will make it impossible to find a jury. And the media hasn't put out a ton of information since Koberger's arrest. Well, because of this order. So is that a good thing or not? And where is the balance? So let's get back to the motion. Now that we've talked about the fugitive case, let's get back back to the motion. The motion says, to ensure a proper balance between the First and Sixth Amendments, a party requesting a gag order must present evidence that the prohibited speech presents a significant risk of prejudice to a fair trial and that none of the other alternative remedies which do not prohibit speech are sufficient to prevent or remedy any prejudice. Things like putting the 911 call under seal till the trial. There are more tailored or more narrowly tailored ways to do this. And so they're arguing these means are too restrictive. What is the least restrictive way to accomplish the goal of a fair trial? So don't overly restrict the media and their right to a free press, their First Amendment rights, to still protect the defendant's Sixth Amendment right. And that really is where that balance comes down on what is the less and least restrictive way to do this. They go on to argue that the parties have fallen well short here as they have submitted no evidence on the record to support the sweeping gag order that's in place. The gag order violates the First Amendment because it is vague, overbroad, unduly restrictive, and not narrowly drawn. That's that narrowly tailored aspect of it to make sure that if there is a prohibition on the press, that it is absolutely the least that is necessary to protect the defendant's rights. They go on to say that the gag order in this case is not tailored at all, that section one of the gag order prohibits any extrajudicial statements written or oral concerning the case. So that statement applies to all statements. And they're saying you can't just apply to all statements. Section two offers examples of prohibited speech but it does not say those examples are exhaustive or limit the general prohibition of any statements, quote, concerning the case. As a result, the gag order prohibits all statements about Mr. Koberger's prosecution, even statements that could help him secure a fair trial. Unsurprisingly, then, they say individuals have said the gag order prohibits them from making comments on innocuous topics like how the Moscow community is healing, how many cell phone towers are around where the murder occurred, the size of Koberger's cell, the meals Koberger receives, Koberger's job application to the Pullman Police Department. And then it cites that back to the declaration that we read. Even without sweeping prohibitions in Section 1 and Section 2 of the gag order does not precisely mirror Rule 3.6 commentary or Rule 3.6's commentary. For example, Section 2A prohibits speech on, quote, evidence regarding the occurrences or transactions involved in the case, which is broader than the comments section about speech related to the identity or nature of physical evidence expected to be presented. Those are very different things. And I don't know if they picked those examples because they were so different, but the rule of professional conduct is the rule that is governing pretrial publicity. And that rule says the identity or nature of physical evidence expected to be presented. So saying we're going to see this, we're going to see that is different than occurrences or transactions involved in the case, which could literally be anything, including he was arrested on this day. Well, that's an occurrence or transaction. They go on to say that the gag order prohibits speech from a broad and vague group of individuals um, and then lists again the entire group of individuals saying to start that group of individuals 
is vague, although the gag order expressly identifies certain types of individuals, that list is not exhaustive because the phrase including but not limited to, so they're saying the including but not limited to makes it way over broad and over vague. And I understand the argument here because it's made everyone nervous. What's an investigator? Who's the investigator? I mean, everyone but the defense attorney in Pennsylvania. <laughs> everyone but that defense attorney who talked to everyone. Um, everyone but that dude have been nervous, it seems, uh, to talk more about this case. They say that as a result, others like the victim's family and law enforcement outside the state of Idaho must guess as to whether they are subject to the court's gag order. That guessing game renders the gag order unconstitutionally vague. It also extends the court's jurisdiction or exceeds the court's jurisdiction as the court cannot bind individuals who are not before it and who reside outside of Idaho, which is probably what they're leaning into in Pennsylvania, right? It's like you, you can't really curtail me from speaking in Pennsylvania with a court order from Idaho. I'm not disagreeing with their assessment about the overbroadness and vagueness of this order. It's how the court can more narrowly tailor this. And I wonder if they will. That would be an interesting result. If the court more narrowly tailors the gag order so that it's a bit more clear and precise, and then technically they win the motion, but the gag order remains in place. They go on to talk about the Supreme Court precedent, saying the court cited three U.S. Supreme Court decisions in footnote one of the gag order, Shepard, Nebraska Press, and Gentile. Gentile, I think it's Gentile. Um, while those cases acknowledge the propriety of regulating some speech from lawyers and trial participants, they also explain the findings of prejudice and narrow tailoring that are required before prohibiting speech. The party's stipulation and the court order ignores those principles. Taking the cases in order, the U.S. Supreme Court first decided Shepard v. Maxwell in 1966. There, a prisoner challenged his conviction, arguing he did not receive a fair trial um, because of publicity before his trial and before and during his trial. For example, Shepard jurors were subjected to newspaper, radio, and television coverage of the trial while not taking part in the proceedings. How did this happen? Did you have a TV of the media coverage on in like the jury break room? Like what was going on? Three months before trials, Shepard was examined for more than five hours without counsel and was televised live from a high school gymnasium seating hundreds of people. So his five hour without counsel examination was televised live to the entire community. During the trial, the lower court erected a press table for reporters inside the bar where some 20 reporters sat within a few feet of the jury box. The lower court also assigned almost all of the available seats in the courtroom to news media. Together, those decisions interfered with the privacy and tranquility of the defendant, the witnesses, and the jury during the trial. So when we're looking at the egregiousness of the press interfering with the case, this is one of the most egregious. As a result of those and other facts, the court held that Shepard did not receive a fair trial. In support of that holding, the court noted the trial judge's failure to prevent or remedy any prejudice to Shepard using remedies such as a continuance of the trial, sequestration of the jury, control of the courtroom. They go on to say that the court citing to Shepard is distinguishable because 
Shepard is a due process case, not a First Amendment case. They said nobody appeared to argue that the prescription suggested by the court would violate the First Amendment, so the court did not decide that issue. Shepard was decided based on the defendant's rights, but didn't have much to do with the media rights. Why? Because the media was allowed to do literally what the fuck ever. That's why the case didn't address the media's constitutional right, only the defendant's constitutional right. And they say that those stark legal and factual difference mean that Shepard is not controlling. More importantly, the gag order here is not the hypothetical order that Shepard described. There, the court contemplated an order limiting speech on prejudicial matters, such as a refusal of Shepard to submit to an interrogation or take any lie detector test, statements made by Shepard to officials, the identity of prospective witnesses and their testimony, any other belief in guilt or innocence, because apparently the judge was out there saying the man was guilty as fuck to the media while the trial was underway. Like the amount of the amount of problems in this case. I don't know. I never do historical deep dives, but I might I might do one for this case. Maybe for members. Members, let me know what you think. Maybe we'll do a members only deep dive into this case. This case has been covered so much, but it really is fascinating as we talk about what the rights of a defendant look like and where the Supreme Court has found that the media has overstepped in such a way to actually deny the defendant their Sixth Amendment rights. They then go to the Nebraska Press Association versus Stewart. The gag order there prohibited statements about the existence and nature of any confessions or admissions made by the defendant to law enforcement officers. That's reasonable. Any confessions or admissions made to third parties except members of the press. That's reasonable. Other facts strongly implicative of the accused. So things that really go towards, did the defendant confess? Because if you're in the media, or if you hear in the media that a defendant confessed, can you unring that bell or put the shit back in the horse if you hear that, but then go to trial and don't see it? Not all confessions come in, especially if the confession was obtained in violation of other constitutional rights. Even with the narrower scope of the prohibitions, the court held that the gag order was unconstitutional. While drawing that conclusion, the court explained the three principles relevant here. First, the First Amendment and the Sixth Amendment are entitled to equal protection. One of those rights does not outweigh the other. So neither of these outbalance the other one. As the court explained, the authors of the Bill of Rights did not undertake to assign priorities as between the First and Sixth Amendment. I mean, there can be an argument of constitutional interpretation about putting one first and putting one sixth and whether one through six is an order of priority. And I'm not making that conversation today, but if you have thoughts about that, I'd be happy to hear them because what do I know? The Supreme Court has decided that the authors of the Bill of Rights did not undertake to assign priorities between the First and Sixth Amendments. It is thus not for the courts to, quote, rewrite the Constitution by undertaking what the founders declined to do. Instead, First Amendment rights should yield only when necessary to protect Sixth Amendment rights. There is a, quote, need to protect the accused as fully as possible and a need to restrict publication as little as possible. This is what we were just talking about. The second and related principle is that the courts should consider other measures before issuing a gag order, which is why we don't see them a lot. The court endorsed many alternatives, such as a change of trial venue to a place less exposed to intense publicity, postponement of the trial to allow public attention to subside. They're like, hey, the public has a short attention span. Why don't you just, 
why don't you just wait and let the let the news cycle will out? Uh, the use of emphatic and clear instructions to the sworn duty of each juror, the sequestration of jurors. So the court is like, there are lots of alternatives to make sure there is a, a impartial jury before you get to a broad gag order. Even when I think the rights that the court is asking for are reasonable. I don't think these things feel overbroad, right? The existence or nature of any confessions or admissions, any confessions or admissions made to third parties. These are really specific things that the court was saying, hey, these things we're not talking about. And even then the court said, no, that's still too restrictive. Talking about the Nebraska press case, this motion argues that the court observed that, quote, pretrial publicity, even if pervasive and concentrated, cannot be regarded as leading automatically and in every kind of criminal case to an unfair trial. So what the court has said is, hey, just because there's intense attention on this case doesn't mean that that is causation of an unfair trial. Publicity does not equal unfair trial. So it doesn't mean that publicity equals a gag order. Given that assumptions are inappropriate in this context, the probability of prejudice was, quote, not demonstrated with a degree of certainty required. The court has to show how there would be prejudice to the defendant. And then they get to Gentile versus State Bar of Nevada, a 1991 case. Relatively modern as we're looking at the cases in, that are cited here. As I said, these are not new problems. They're just presenting themselves in new ways. There, an attorney challenged disciplinary action taken against him for allegedly violating Nevada's equivalent of the Idaho Rule of Professional Conduct 3.6. Like the Idaho Rule, the Nevada Rule prohibited an attorney from making, quote, an extrajudicial statement that a reasonable person would expect to be disseminated by means of public communication if the lawyer knows or reasonably should have known that it will have a substantial likelihood of materially prejudicing an adjudicative proceeding. The court held that the rule was unconstitutional as interpreted and applied in Nevada. The court's decision was fractured, but part two of Chief Justice Rehnquist's opinion garnered the majority and is relevant here. Rehnquist first observed that by default, the First Amendment requires a showing of clear and present danger that a malfunction in the criminal justice system will be caused before a state may prohibit media speech or publication about a particular pending trial. That said, the law imposes a less demanding standard for regulating speech of lawyers representing clients in pending cases because those lawyers are participants in the criminal justice system, and thus the state may demand some adherence to the precepts of that system. So this is talking mostly about lawyer speech and when you can curtail the speech of lawyers that are directly involved in the case. In this case, that would be the defense attorneys and the prosecutors. This has been extended to the victim's family attorney, and the victim's family attorney is arguing, no, this doesn't apply to me. And the press is going, we're not lawyers. We have more of a right to a free press than they do. The right to lawyers participating in the process can be curtailed. They argue that in some, Shepard, Nebraska Press, and Gentile all favor vacating the gag order. Those cases only permit prohibitions on speech that are justified by a risk of material prejudice and too narrowly tailored 
to limit only the speech that is actually prejudicial and cannot be prevented or remedied through other means. What do you think about this? I'm going to get to the conclusion of this. We are most of the way through the order. We did not go th or through the argument. We did not go through all of it. But in conclusion, they're arguing that when balancing the rights of speech with a right to a fair trial, the court's aim should be to recognize each right as much as possible. Only when speech necessarily infringes the right to a fair trial is there a justification for curtailing speech. And again, strict scrutiny is an exacting standard that ensures speech is curtailed when and only when necessary. So even if some federal courts have interpreted the First Amendment to yield short of the outer boundaries of the right to a fair trial by adopting tests that are over-inclusive when curtailing speech, this court should interpret Article 1, Section 9 as more broadly protecting all speech that falls short of infringing the right to a fair trial, either because there is not sufficient certainty that the speech will be prejudicial or because other remedies short of restricting speech can prevent or cure the prejudice. So I know the media takes a lot of shit. I will give legacy media shit when deserved. But the media sticking up for their own free speech, I think is good for everyone. Access and public access to the courtroom is a needed thing. And when technology makes that access available to so many more, you have more eyes focused on the system to not just keep the system that's incarcerating people in check, but to also keep the media in check. If you listen to this podcast, you've probably watched some trial coverage with me. And if that's true and you keep an eye on the media, you might have seen that your interpretation of a witness, a piece of evidence, or the trial, and the media interpretation of that is different. Shouldn't communities get to decide for themselves, not filtered through the opinion of some in the media? Not all do it. There are still those that will just say, this witness said this. That witness said that. The court removed defendant for having another outburst or whatever it is. There are some that will still just report, but there are many, many more that will interpret what is happening in a way that they want to, or because they can't just say what's happening, they need to interject their own opinion into it. And sometimes that interjection of opinion is not clear. Both happen. Isn't it better if the public can go and watch what the witnesses say? Because the way you might interpret a witness and the way I might interpret a witness are different. The way you might interpret a statement or an attorney might be very different from how the media does. And shouldn't, especially the communities that are impacted by this, get to see how their judges are ruling on objections see how the attorneys are doing things, see if the prosecution and or defense attorney are holding up weapons in the courtroom and pointing them around everywhere. Shouldn't the public know that? I didn't see that reported on much at all when Harputlian did it or when the prosecutor in Rittenhouse did it more than, than when, when Poot did it. But shouldn't you get to see the moments in court if, you, if you're inclined to? The technology's possible. 
So the media standing up for this, I think, is a good thing. I'll be interested to see what the court does. I find some of these arguments very compelling, and I lean in the direction of the media has a right to report. The defendant obviously has a right to a fair trial. But in every case that I have covered, we have seen that they have been able to find jurors that still know nothing about this, even though it can feel that we are so inundated with coverage because the algorithms in our media go, oh, you like that. Here's more. But for those that aren't looking at it and it's not on their radar, they're not seeing it day in and day out because they have the option to see something else. I mean, sports coverage doesn't just come across any of my shit. <laughs> I stay well away from whatever sports ball is going on this season. I'm not sure which one it is. Probably not football, right? Maybe hockey and basketball. March Madness happened in March. I don't know. It doesn't come up because it's not what I click on. So I think there's still an argument that the media can report and then has to give way to those who don't want to talk if they don't want to talk to the media. But the media is being told now, we can't talk to you because of the gag order. If people are using the gag order as an excuse, we're going to find that out if the gag order gets modified. I don't know if the court will vacate it, though, because we've seen this court double down. I'm interested to know your thoughts on this. I appreciate that the media, I mean, the media is standing up for their own money. I'm not saying that this is altruistic. The media is standing up for their right to go after the story and to present evidence to the public that is going to garner them the, the clicks and the views that they so desire. But also, the public wants to know. They wouldn't be doing this if there wasn't great and vast public interest in this case. The prosecution and the defense would both rather not have to try this case under the scrutiny of the entire world. And I have so much empathy for that. I can't imagine trying to do the job of a criminal attorney under cameras being picked apart worldwide. I think it would be tremendously difficult. And I have a tremendous amount of respect for those who find themselves working their job and a case comes across their desk that the public is invested in. But that is what's happening here. And the public does have a right to be present and to see what is happening in court without having to rely on the reports of those in the courtroom, I think. I think it's better. We have the technology, put the media in the courtroom, let people decide for themselves. And then don't yell at them when they agree with the jury. That's just, those are my personal opinions on that. I'm interested in what the court's going to do. I will cover the scheduling hearing. It will probably be pretty quick, but I will cover that. And I will keep covering this case. I'm going to cover what the defense has to say, what the prosecution has to say. Will the prosecution object to this? Will the defense file a written motion? I don't know, but we will see if they do, and I will cover those then. I can imagine the defendant sticking up for their rights uh, in a written motion, but I can also see the prosecution saying we don't want a conviction overturned because of something the media went and did before we even got to do our trial. The prosecution wants to go through this prosecution to trial once. They definitely don't want to have to do it again because something gets overturned due to the media. So with that, thank you for being here. Thank you for being a law nerd. I have not reminded you this episode to do the things and I trust that you know what the things are. 
If you love listening to the podcast, you can listen to it on your favorite podcast player. Go ahead and leave it a review. Yes, it actually does help. If you watch it on the YouTubes, go ahead and do the YouTube things. Subscribe, hit your notifications so you know when I go live. I also will keep you updated at lawnerdalert.com when I have live videos, when I am doing trial coverage, and when other fun little things drop. And I have some fun little things for you coming up in the next week that you will hear about on lawnerdalert.com. So be sure to go over there and sign up for our alerts. With all of that, thank you for being here. Thank you for being a law nerd. It's time to say goodbye. May your Wi-Fi be strong. May your toilet, I got it backwards. It's going to happen. May your toilet paper be plentiful. May your family be well. May the humidity feel good to your skin that's been dry all winter, but leave your hair alone. And may the odds be ever in your favor. I will talk to you in the next one. You can find more Law Nerd goodness in our private Law Nerd community over at lawnerdsunite.com. And if you want to stay up to date with everything I'm covering, you can follow me on social media at the Emily D. Baker. I stream on YouTube on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and I recap those streams for those of you a little pressed for time over on the Quick Bits podcast and Quick Bits YouTube channel. Thanks for being a Law Nerd. <laughs>